Good morning, church. It's good to see. I'm very grateful for visitors we have here. Uh, we are the Crossing Church. We emphasize as often as possible that we are the church. It's not something we do. It's not an event we attend this morning. We are gathered as the church to worship God. And so we, we try to be intentional with not just our language, but everything we do in this season, Advent season. We want to be intentional with that. So last year, our first true Advent as worshipers gathering, uh, we took time to really break down what is Advent. We had four sermons on this idea of Advent, but it comes from a Latin word meaning coming. It's an arrival. It's Jesus showing up. We're waiting his second coming to be our king and rule forever. And so this year we've decided prayerfully to continue in the book of Mark. So we're going to continue as we've been going through Mark uh, in chapter 10. If you want to go ahead and be there, we'll, we'll be there in a minute. But we also want to take time to, to recognize the season that we're in. So we'll be doing that as Jesse led us through this morning. And we intend to do it at the beginning. One more reason for you to be on time. Uh, and we're going to walk through this hope that we have that Christ saves us. He's come to save us and he's coming to save us and he's currently saving us. And we're a part of this as individuals and we're a part of this as a church and it's all because of the gospel. So the reason we do everything we do intentionally is because we want to elevate the gospel. We want it to always be about Jesus and if we just do our preference or whatever we feel like or whatever the culture tells us we should be doing around this time of year, then we'll easily be distracted by other things. And so our greatest hope in this season is not that you get everything you want. It's that you get Jesus because he's everything you need. And he's come to give himself to us. And the gospel changes us. We're not who we used to be. And we're, we're being made more and more to the image of Christ. There's this beautiful work going on in us. And so walking through the book of Mark, which is his gospel account of who Jesus is, is exactly where we need to be. And so... We're going to continue on in that, and that's really all that I'm going to say about Advent, but it's not all I'm going to say about Jesus and the gospel. So in Mark chapter 10, we'll look at verses 13 through 16 this morning, and he aims to show us this very thing that he's come to save us. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So this is the word of God. We know it to be true. We know it to be dependable and we know it to be more than just words on a screen or a page, but something living and active, making us more and more like Christ. But we don't always see clearly what exactly that means. This is a very brief story. seems like it's just thrown in there, especially if you've not been with us or read the book of Mark. It, it may just sound nice. In fact, it's a passage that a lot of people like because it shows Jesus loving little children. That's awesome. And of course, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, and white. They're precious in His sight. And Jesus loves me. And this I know for the Bible tells me so. And we could go on. But we're not going to. The main concern of this account, though, is not so much Jesus loving the children, but more so how they represent those who will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And so we have to stop and ask some questions because it's kind of strange that he would say the things he said. Of course, we consider kids to be adorable, but we don't really, there's not adoration. There's not, I desire to be a child. That's who we used to be. I'm not going to go backwards. It doesn't make sense. So it would be weird if you not just thought kids were adorable, but you thought, man, I can't wait to be like you one day. It's just (laughs) uncommon for a reason. And so we have to stop and we have to ask some questions. And if we think about it, and as I thought about it, preparing this, the first thing I consider is a distinction needs to be made between being childlike and being childish. Because what we don't want is to be childish. That's what we're actually trying to avoid. So we think to ourselves, I'm superior. I've, I've outgrown my childish ways. In fact, Scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, the chapter on love, stops and he considers this for a second. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. I memorized this as a teenager because I thought it was awesome. I became a man. I'm a man. I'm giving up my childish ways. But I never really considered what exactly he was saying. And then to see that juxtaposed with this idea of Jesus, it seems, seems to be contradictory. To, for Jesus to imply childlikeness is something to be desired. But then the Apostle Paul writes in Corinthians, give up your childish ways. And so the distinction to make here between childlike and childish, I think was said great by a guy named Barnabas Piper, which is an awesome name, Barnabas. He says, childish and childlike are similar words with vastly different meanings. The former encapsulates all the worst things about children. Petulance, immaturity, obnoxiousness, selfishness, and so on. It is antithetical to faith. The latter, though, describes all the beautiful things about children. Trust, joy, innocence, curiosity, wonder, forgiveness, and so much more. This word, childlike, is the flavor our faith in God ought to have. To capture these wonderful attributes is to be childlike. To, to have this freedom, this joy in life. To be, in a sense, seemingly innocent. To be humble. To realize, I need you. These attributes of being a child. So, so he goes on in this article, Barnabas does, to, to talk about what these attributes could be. And to, to tell you a few of them. Asking honest and open questions without shame. Kids aren't embarrassed to ask you when they don't know something. Vulnerability, especially with their parents. They're fearless to go to their parents with things. Small children are because their parents take care of them. That's what they know. Children don't know what's best for them, but their parents do. Children are confident in and satisfied by the love their parents give them. Small children know. My mom, my dad, they love me. They provide for me. I know that there's a lot of examples of uh, an, an unloving parent. We're talking about an ideal situ- situation where a child knows their love and they can trust that. They're satisfied by the love of their parents. That's why they enjoy the gifts, the cookies, the candy. My kid, the first words he learns are candy and cookie and cake. But he knows it's because he's loved that he gets those things. And so, of course, having a child, all of this means something much more to me. But also considering my childhood and difficulties in my childhood, and moments where I felt unloved, and then moments I can remember where I was incredibly loved, and then knowing God as my Father. So all of this, I begin to process all of this through what Jesus is saying. If I'm a child, if I'm to be childlike, this is what it means. However, 
I believe that there's something much more central in this passage than just having the attributes of a kid. I think there's something, a position these kids have that gives them these attributes. I think it's more than Jesus saying, have these attributes. There's something not only more central, but there's also secondary things here that we need to consider. So let's, let's get in and take a closer look at these verses. Back to verse 13 and the first part of 14. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. So there's not a whole lot of context here. Mark doesn't often give context. He wants us to focus in on the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. But we do know some of what's going on because we've been in Mark for a while. So we know Jesus has been with these guys for a long time. He's experienced life with them. They've seen him do miracles. He's done incredible things that they've never seen before. He's taught them things that they've never heard before. He's behaved like a teacher, a rabbi is what they call him. He's behaved like a teacher that no other rabbi has behaved like. He's, he's going against the religious system at the time. He's demonstrating something new. He's a rebel in a lot of ways. And these guys are following him, learning from him in all of his power and his might. And, and now he's on the, on the road back to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And he knows this and he's told them, but they're not getting it. They don't really see it. And, and he's taking time to stop along the way and teach just his disciples. Not the masses like he's done before, but just the church, just his disciples. He's teaching them valuable lessons. And, and just before this passage was on marriage and divorce and now children. So it seems like he's, he's explaining to them what you should see family, how you should see family. And he takes time in this passage because people apparently have found him and they're bringing in, bringing in their kids. So parents are bringing in their children. And, and the word here in Mark is just child. But Luke tells a similar story, the same story, different words, and he uses the word for infant. So it gives us this idea of the age of these children. These are very young children, babies, toddlers. And it's important that we see that because it's, it's kids that can give nothing. Then they can't even be taught, really. Jesus could try to teach them, but if you try to teach infants and toddler things, they're not going to comprehend in the ways that we would comprehend. So these kids can't be taught a lesson. He's just loving them. He's just blessing them. These parents are bringing their kids to be blessed by the creator of the universe. They may not know that, but they think they're bringing them to a rabbi. And this was a common custom. They would bring their kids to rabbis to be blessed. But kids were often seen in this, in this time period, first century Eastern culture, as unimportant in a lot of ways. Kids weren't worshipped like they are in our culture. It wasn't... There wasn't anything super special about kids. In fact, at best, they were seen as like an unavoidable interim until they can be adults. Because they couldn't give anything to the family. They just sucked up resources. They slowed mom down. And I know that sounds harsh, but that's how they viewed kids. They weren't that big of a deal to them. And so for these parents to bring their kids, this is something unique. Hebrew culture saw things a little differently than the rest of the world. They, in Old Testament, they called kids blessings. That was uncommon. But these these families, no doubt, are just culturally bringing their kids just to receive a blessing from a rabbi, and then they're going to go back to their lives. Now, adulthood comes a lot sooner, 12-year-old for girls, 13 for boys, but there's these, this age where it's just these kids are taking up space. And it's because of that cultural mindset that the disciples respond the way they do. They're rebuking them. They're turning them away. They're, being, they're, they're saying, don't distract Jesus. Don't, 
take up his time. This is a burden to him. It's unnecessary. They're sending him away. They think they're doing what's right. But Jesus obviously disagrees. And this is, this is actually something that is unique. Indignant is the word they use here. It's never used in another place. This type of anger that Jesus feels is stirring in him that he would react in this way. And the words that he used to follow are in the Greek and kind of in the English, very staccato. Like it's, don't do this. Like he's sharply correcting them. So he's indignant at their behavior. What I love about Mark is though he doesn't always offer a lot of context, he gives us a lot of humanity to Jesus. He really makes Jesus very human. And he, he doesn't do uh, the long birth story that, that the other uh, Luke and, and Matthew do, but he does give us Jesus as human in the flesh, incarnate, advent. He's come. And in other places we see this, Mark chapter 1 and, and elsewhere, it shows he's compassionate to the leper. And in Mark chapter 3, it shows he's, he's angry at the hardness of heart that the Pharisees have. And and here he's indignant towards the disciples, but elsewhere he's frustrated often with their inability to comprehend and their inability to act and behave rightly and the inability to believe after he's demonstrated time and again what they should believe. And he's at, he has a love for the rich young ruler that we'll see at the end of this chapter next week or towards the end. And then a deep distress in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's awaiting his crucifixion. He's praying so fervently that he's distressed and he's sweating blood out of anxiety and an abandonment that he feels when he hangs on the cross. These emotions that Jesus, the creator of the universe, all-powerful, all-knowing, he knows everything that would happen. He could remove himself from the cross. He could take away any suffering and pain he has to endure. He could immediately change the minds of these people and have them know exactly what to believe. But instead, he endures this temptation to sin. He endures these emotions that we feel to know us better. The God of the universe has become a man so that he could feel and know what we feel. The sympathetic Savior is suffering and serving so that we could know God. Yet something very unique about him is he never sins. So he doesn't allow this frustration to come out sinfully. This, even the indignation, he doesn't allow it to come out sinfully. To Jesus, these children are wonderful. To Jesus, these children are beautiful creations of God because they bear the image of God like every other human being. They have dignity. They have value. And a culture that has ignored this at best, they, they despise children for taking up space. They've missed the value altogether. And Jesus seeks to right that wrong as he does every other wrong. He's come to give his life to restore the world as it should be. So, if you recall, Jesus had just used a child as an object lesson not long ago of what it means to be humble. And the disciples still missed it, so he is indignant. And he says to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Now this is profound. Maybe not immediately to us, but no doubt it's shocking to them that he would say, to the children, the kingdom of God is theirs. The infants, the babies, the toddlers. You guys are missing it. The kingdom belongs to them. Now this seems like a great place. If any, any other place that Jesus could teach the doctrine of paedo-baptism. Like 
Here's why you baptize babies. But he doesn't, and neither does anyone else anywhere in Scripture. Because it's not a thing. But whole denominations believe that it is, and they cling to passages like this, where Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to them. And it's this idea of that they are part of the covenant community, and we need to baptize them into the community. That's not how it works, and I don't think we need to go into it right now. If you want to know more about pedo-baptism and why we don't do it, please come talk to us. We'd love to sit down and chat about it. If it's something that you are hurt about, like you really want us to do it, you should probably find another church. It's not going to happen. All right. <clears throat> but, but we believe in a believer's baptism. So we have a professing believer come a new, new life in Christ. We're going to baptize you as a symbol of what Christ has done in you. And so that's why Jesus doesn't teach it. But he is saying something very profound. He's saying exactly what he said. The kingdom of God is theirs. And this is where we can get the belief that babies go to heaven. And we can understand that the kingdom belongs to them. Not, though, not because of their innocence. Because they're not innocent. They're guilty like every other human. In the womb, we are sinners. We're born with a sinful flesh that desires to satisfy itself. Every human being who's ever lived, with the exception of one, Jesus because he was born of a virgin without an earthly father, has had this, this sinful nature passed down from father to child, from father to child, throughout the history of the world. And because of it, all of us deserve hell. All of us deserve to be punished for eternity. But our gracious father in heaven has sent his son to bear the weight of that wrath so that we could know him. And in fact, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Every believer clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees not the sinner deserving hell, but those saved who will belong to him for eternity. So what he's saying here is significant, not because these kids are innocent, but because it demonstrates this amazing grace that could somehow overcome what they deserve, though they are not of age to to even understand it, let alone appreciate it. So what is it in these children well, the kingdom belongs to babies and those like them. This, this can't be because of innocence. So it's all about grace. So much so that Jesus would say, truly, I say to you. And this is when he wants your attention. He says, truly, I say to you. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The kingdom belongs to them so much so that truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like they do, You will not enter. So what can you possibly mean by this? Let's consider the scene. So Jesus, chilling with the boys, having a good time, hanging out, whatever they're doing. I know that there's some people who are adamantly opposed to alcohol, but they're drinking wine because that's what Jesus does with the disciples. They drink wine, enjoying life as Jesus does with his disciples. And then people start showing up with their babies, interrupting the good time. The disciples are thinking, no, we're turning these guys away. So they start turning them away. Jesus gets indignant and he says, no, stop. Let them come to me. He wants the children to come to him. And he receives the children and he holds the children. Jesus grows angry and then says something like, you're thinking these kids need to grow up and be adults before they can accept me. You think they need to be adults before I can demonstrate grace to them. Well, 
actually, you need to be more like them. And you need to let them come to me because the kingdom is already theirs. In fact, you don't, you don't receive the kingdom unless you can come to me like they do. You think they need what you have, but you actually need what they have. And then verse 16, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And though it was common for rabbis in that day to bless kids, this was something different. Jesus is embracing these, these babies. He's loving them. He's blessing them. Jesus is raising the social standard and accepting children like no one else has ever accepted children. He's saying, not only are the children our future, but right now they have significance. Right now they matter. This is a, this is a lesson for the church. If we are to be more like Christ, we are to embrace children like Christ does. This is a lesson to men who think it's more masculine to never show emotion. If you want to be more like Christ, you love your children by embracing them. And I mean, I'm not saying you have to coo and caw and tickle their lip. But you have to realize children have significance. They matter. And like Christ, we should embrace them in our arms. Not just your own kids. We should love children. All the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, and white. They're precious in His sight. And they should be precious in our sight. And that is how I'm confident when I trust my son to Jesus. Because I see here so clearly He loves Titus. He loves my son. It's meaningful. And and church, if we want to be more like Jesus, we should love children like Jesus loves children, even when it's a sacrifice, even when it's inconvenient for us, even when it feels like a burden, even if it feels like they're sucking up all the resources, giving nothing back to the family. I'm talking about college kids. And, and this applies to every member of society who can't give back. So not just children, but the underprivileged and the, and the mentally challenged and the socially challenged. Those who lack anything that we would value as humans. We bear the image of God. All human beings do and they have value. So let them come to us. Take them in. Embrace them. Bless them as Christ does. So much of what Jesus is doing and saying here would be shocking to any onlooker in that time, especially the disciples who were somehow continually shocked by everything. And you'd be pressed to find anything in ancient literature that's anywhere near the type of compassion Jesus shows these kids. It just doesn't appear because no one does that. But more than the actions, what he says here, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, is profound and applicable to every culture throughout history. Because kids are the same everywhere you find them. Children are, yes, typically optimistic, humble, and they have tremendous capacity for joy and are amazed by the simplest of things. Setting up the tree last night, Titus was like, Ooh, wow, for everything. Every box, it, oh, wow. Come on, it's not bad, awesome. But it, it brought me joy to see him have joy over these simple things. And he's running back and forth, hanging ornaments on the same branch. I don't even care. And he started just throwing them under the tree because he just got tired. And he just to, it was great. 
how much joy he had in such a simple thing. And those are great attributes. And these qualities are certainly commendable. However, it doesn't appear in this passage that the reason Jesus blesses these children is because of these qualities. I mean, at least it's not the primary thing. It seems that these qualities are are existent in the children because of something else that Jesus desires from us. Nothing. The emphasis in this story is that the children themselves, not their virtues. And, And what's so significant about their age, the young babies and toddlers, having nothing to give back is that very thing. They have nothing. They come to Jesus with nothing. They receive the kingdom not because of their virtue, but because of their helplessness. They're helplessly dependent on Jesus. So childlike faith is a realization that we are helplessly dependent And because we're helplessly dependent, then we're humble. Then we're expectant. And then we're we're needy. I mean, we we have all these attributes that we named before. This optimism that there's hope. I mean, it's it's not that we're... Childlike faith is naive and you outgrow it. Childlike faith is realizing you're not good enough. You never can be good enough. Jesus is all sufficient. And we need Him. It isn't what they have or what they've done... It isn't what we have or what we've done or what we can do. We go to Jesus with nothing and he gives us everything. In fact, the kingdom can't be gained. It can only be received. And that's why he says it in the way he does. Whoever receives the kingdom like these these children. So who does the receiving? Well, those who like little children come to Jesus powerless, without sophistication, without a list of their best virtues, without good deeds, rather empty handed, helpless, dependent, no credit, no clout, no claim, absolutely nothing to give him, to offer him in exchange for his love because he doesn't ask for anything. So all that he offers you is by his amazing grace without merit. We don't deserve it. He gives it to us. And the only problem with this line of thinking is that we don't believe it's true. Kids do. Babies do. But for us, I mean, we've outgrown that. We're independent. I can take care of myself. I don't need anyone. I got this. I mean, it's almost like a satire. We get shot in the leg. I'm good. I'm fine. I'll take care of it. I don't need a doctor. I mean, we laugh about it, but it's so true. And, it, and it's culturally acceptable. Like, when I go to the store with Amelia, we go to the store often, every single time, I don't think it's ever happened any other way, we get separated because I get distracted looking at an ingredient list or where something was made or figuring out how to use something that I'm not even going to buy, and she just disappears. And never, I mean, we developed a little call, I go, caca! And she says, I'm over here. That's how common it happens. But never has anyone ever come up to me and say, hey, little guy. Where's your mom? Never. Don't worry, buddy. We'll find her. Come on. You know why they don't do that? Because I'm a grown man. I got the keys. I'm all right. But when I was a child, 
With, the, with my mom, I haven't outgrown this, still distracted in stores by everything. And she would leave me, not because she doesn't love me. She was busy. I don't know. I don't know. I was a child. She was a single mom at that time, so she'd run off doing single mom stuff. And, and I would fall on the ground and wail like a scared little boy because it was tremendously terrifying. I didn't have the keys. I wasn't a grown man. I was dependent on my mother. And so people would find me and help me, but they didn't have to because she'd just fall the screaming, and there I was. I think there's a very important distinction here that everyone probably hears and saw. Children are totally dependent, totally identify with their parents, even more so in this first century culture. If you didn't have family, you were nobody. Family was everything. You were, your identity was totally tied up in who you belong to. Even as adults, who's your dad mattered. And in America, we've really individualized things and we can be our own person, but there's some genetic things that are undeniable. You're going to look like and act like your parents whether you want to or not, even if you don't know them. It's weird. Because we're so dependent. Our identity is so tied to who we belong to. And we need it. What's what a crucial difference that needs to be pointed out here is with, with being children of God, this needs to be something we never outgrow because we always need Him. And you were dependent as an infant, no matter how independent you feel right now. You were dependent as an infant. Every person in this room was born in this world naked and dependent on somebody. If people didn't do what they did when you were an infant, you'd be dead. We have to have. And in that same way right now, we must be spiritually infants. Not immature, not childish, but childlike in our faith. Dependent on Jesus. The self-centeredness that that we think is so logical. This independence that we think is so necessary for our survival is a lie. We are dependent. We must be dependent. We need Jesus. And I think there's no better way to help us see this than to, to make big sin so we can see how big Jesus is. And so in order to recapture the magnitude of our need for Jesus, I want to emphasize the magnitude of our sin. So we tend to think of sin as adultery, murder, addiction. Or even if you bring the New Testament in, Jesus says if you hate, that's murder. If you lust, that's adultery. So we'll add those things. I don't want to hate or lust either because those are sin. We name these sins. We have a list of sin. If you ever talk to a, a youth group or children and you ask them what is sin, the first thing they'll do is name some examples. When you lie to your mom or when you steal something because it's easy. Just think of these examples. But sin is so much more. It's so much more pervasive. It's so much bigger than just some things we do wrong. It's this deception. It's enticing. The way we view sin as these things I do that I need to do away with will only distract you from the things you do that you need to do away with. And, and you'll, you'll not see the sin that dwells in you and is eating you alive. Because it sneaks itself in. And what's so deceptive about it is we want it. We willingly give ourselves to it. Because it feels good. It feels right. It's logical. Because it's our nature. It's our sinful nature. It makes sense. And you know your sinful hang-ups, sure. And if you're a Christian and you're sober-minded, you probably hate your sinful hang-ups. But you see your sin 
and you want to stop sinning. And maybe you keep giving back into the sin, but you, you know if you repent and go back to Jesus, he'll forgive you. And you think somehow it's under your control, so you allow for certain things that you probably shouldn't allow for. And it, it gets you back in, and you've sinned again, and you react in anger, or you, you give yourself over to lust, or you try to lie to make yourself look better than you actually are. And then you feel bad about it, so you repent again. Does this sound familiar to anyone? The cycles of sin in our life? Well, if that's you, hear me. You're not good enough. You cannot win. You in yourself do not possess the power to overcome sin. You cannot receive the kingdom of God unless you come to Jesus dependent on His grace, dependent on the power of the gospel to make you new. And the new you does away with sin. Old you will fail time and time again. The old flesh wants to sin. Christ has given you newness of life. He makes all things new in this new you. Dependent on Him gives you freedom from sin. He is all that you need. He has overcome sin and death. And in Him you can find freedom from your sin. But honestly, the sin that you know about, the sin you're aware of, is not the most dangerous. What's most dangerous is the sin we're blind to. Because we don't do anything about it. According to Romans 1, Sin is falling or failing to worship the Creator. Instead, we exchange Him and we worship creation. So the things of this world. This means that the doing, thinking, feeling, being thankful for anything that is not God or giving credit, acknowledgement to God as sovereign over all things is sin. So doing, thinking, feeling, being thankful for anything without acknowledging God's sovereignty is sin. That takes up a lot of things. Romans 14.23 makes it even more extreme. It says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So anything that a non-believer does is sin. Even good deeds that someone without faith does is sin. But even as Christians, as we do life, as we work our jobs, as we provide for our families, as we put up a Christmas tree, as we eat a meal... As I stand here and preach, if this is not proceeding from faith, if it's not dependent on Jesus, it's sin. How out of our control is that? All all that you take for granted, your breathing, your seeing, your hearing, the clothes on your back, the food that you eat, your ability to taste food, working, playing, resting, the ability to enjoy entertainment, all that you would call good, even the challenges that would make you better. All of it is a gracious gift from God. And if we fail to humbly receive that broken with gratitude, even the simplest of things, it's sin. In this seemingly innocent way, sin grips our souls. It it desires to drag us to hell. And it's manifesting itself in your insecurities and in your arrogance and in your fears and your greed and your self-loathing and your hatred of others. And it establishes its own kingdom. And it's not about the kingdom of God. It's the worship of family. It's the worship of money. It's the worship of knowledge, of your reputation, of boasting in a skill that you have. We do all of that because we're terrified. Because we realize we need to be dependent. We don't want to be dependent. We need to be my own man. And the sin, unbeknownst to us, is destroying us. It's killing us. And sin will always leave you wanting more. 
It might satisfy temporarily, but you're always going to want more and, and bigger. And it's going to get worse. And it's going to drag you down. And before you know it, there's rock bottom. And you don't know how you got there. No one wakes up wanting to murder someone. No one wakes up and decides to commit adultery and destroy their family. It's these small things that lead to big things because we're dependent on Jesus and we think we can handle it ourselves. But truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. How is this to be done? We come to Jesus desperate for salvation because we can't save ourselves. Going to Him for help because we're helpless. Coming to realize we're inadequate and we're insufficient, seeing that He lacks nothing and He's all-sufficient. We come to Him with empty hands because only empty hands can be filled. And, and not looking at what we have, looking at what we don't have, there's two things to emphasize that kids don't have. They don't have the ability to help themselves. They're helpless. And they don't have inhibitions. And that makes them dependent yet expectant. It's really a, a weird com combination. Despite having nothing, they would expect everything. So when Titus falls down, he doesn't get up embarrassed and run away. I can't believe I failed. My dad's going to be so disappointed. He taught me how to walk and I failed again. No, he falls down and if he's hurt, he gets up and he runs to his father. Yes. Yes. Because he knows I'm going to love him. He knows I'm going to take him into my arms. He has nothing to offer me but failure because he fell down. But he gets up expecting me to love him because he knows I will, though he has nothing to offer me. That is how we go to our Father. Yes. We've got nothing. We're totally dependent. We're helpless. But we can go to Him expecting Him, knowing He will love us, expecting Him to love us as Jesus has loved these little children. This is childlike faith. And it works like this. If you have too high a view of yourself and your abilities, you aren't childlike and the kingdom of heaven is not yours. If you have too low a view of Jesus and His love, you aren't childlike. And the kingdom of heaven is not yours. We're dependent. We're helpless. Like children. Yet we can expect to be loved. Like children. And Jesus isn't looking at what you've done. Or what, what you can do. Or what you can bring to the table. He's looking at you knowing your sin. Knowing you failed. Knowing you're not good enough. That's why he gave his life. And he's done everything you need, he needs to do. To make you his. So I'm, this morning, if you didn't know, I'm going to be affirmed as a pastor of this church, which is incredible. And I, had, like, I knew it was coming, and I longed for it, since, really since kindergarten, <laughs> kindergarten graduation. When I grow up, I'm going to be a preacher and tell people about Jesus. Am I going to impress my mom? So I wanted her to be happy. All I knew is my mom loved Jesus, my grandma loved Jesus, my aunt loved Jesus, and I loved them women. That's my women right there. So I want to love Jesus. I want everybody to love Jesus. So to be affirmed as a pastor, 
far more emotional than I thought it was going to be. And to those removed from church and removed from Christianity and removed from the significance of this, I could see why this looks dumb that I'm even crying right now. Why is he doing that? But more than that, to be a pastor of this church, of you, is meaningful because I love you, my family. Because you know me. You know me when I'm up here making it all about Jesus. And you know me when I'm in my house sinning, making it about me, frustrated with my wife. You've seen me fail time and again. You've seen me sin. You know I'm imperfect. And you want me to be your pastor. It's incredible. So much more significant than signing a piece of paper, promising to do some things, not really knowing anybody, and calling myself a pastor. To take it, to take it a level deeper, if I can somehow manage to do that emotionally. If any of you came up to me and were like, hey dude, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. You've done a lot. That would be very meaningful. But when my wife comes to me and she says, Kendrick, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. It means a lot that you're in my life. So much more meaningful than if any of you did that. I love you. I'm grateful for you. Thank you. But my wife knows me at a level much deeper than any of you know me. She has really seen me at sinful lows. She knows how big of a screw up I am. She knows how damaged I am. And she loves me. That's so much more meaningful. So now for all of us to consider the creator of the universe, the one who has made us in his image, who knows you better than you know you, he knows your failures, he knows how much you hate yourself sometimes, he knows how you bury yourself in shame, he knows the sinful hangups that you know about and you can't get over, he knows all of it. come to this earth as a man humbled himself off of his throne to serve us to sacrifice for us to love us seeing us fail over and over just like these disciples and we fail and he gave his life up bearing the weight of the wrath that every Christian who would ever believe deserves and eternity in hell couldn't pay for it He took it all on, loving us, knowing us, and loving us anyway. That carries a much more significant weight than any of this. As heavy as it all is, as wonderful as it all is, it's so good to be loved by our God, our Father. So feeling helpless in your sin, knowing that you can't overcome it, let's go to God, our Father, like a child would. God, I'm so grateful for your gospel. 
I'm so grateful for the way you love us. And for the way you've given yourself to us. And you continue to give yourself to us. That we can come to you undeserving with nothing and you give us everything. So I pray now that as we come to a time where we're going to sing songs and worship you and everywhere we can, that we would find the freedom to rejoice as your children, realizing our salvation, restore to us the joy of that salvation and save those who are far from you, that we would all come together as your people and your family to worship you as Father, as Savior, as King. Thank you for coming in the first advent. I pray that in the second coming you will bring much greater joys that we would long for that day, that we would live life anticipating that day is near. We have an urgency. We have a passion and a compassion that you've demonstrated in your word. That we would love children. That we would love those who are unloved. We give our lives to this mission because you've given your life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.